Hey, this is Zane Horowitz and the whole crew at the Oregon Poison Center for the October 2013 Journal Club on drugs that induce Parkinsonian syndrome, or Parkinson's syndrome. I'm going to start out with uh, probably the best known historical example, and we'll go through several other newer papers. But of course, whenever this topic comes up, we have to go back to the original agent that uh, piqued our toxicologic interest in this, which is M. PTP, which is a derivative of Demerol or Meperidine, which is developed. There was an article which I pulled to start off with from JAMA from 1983, and actually sort of tells a little bit of the tale of what happened. Um, and I was actually going to read a little bit from the book that was published by J. William Langston, the physician involved, and John Palferman, a writer called The Case of the Frozen Addicts, had uh, several subtitles over the year. This is a hardbound book says, subtitled, How the Solution of an Extraordinary Medical Mystery Spawned a Revolutionary Revolution in the Understanding and Treatment of Parkinson's Disease. But um, a somewhat hip redacted, although it's all published already, uh, prologue to the book, I will tell you what happened, is San Jose, California, July 1st, 1982. George knew something was wrong the moment he injected the heroin. His arm burned as if the hot lead were flowing into his veins, giving him a stunning high, the best he had for years. Then he began to hallucinate strangely, trying to walk through the door that weren't there, hurting himself each time he plowed into the wall. He vaguely wondered if those four bindles he had bought on the street in Mountain View, um, but then he fell into an uncomfortable sleep. The next morning he awoke, feeling as if his body had turned to stone. When he tried to move, he couldn't. He was stuck. His arm was wrapped around his girlfriend, who wriggled free. Everything George did that day was in slow motion, going to the bathroom, getting dressed. He had no desire to go out, but he had to show up in court or his parole would be revoked. If he failed to appear, he'd be back in prison the next day. And the story goes on how he shows up in court. They think he's under the influence. They take him to the Santa Clara Valley Emergency Room, where the emergency room doctors were skeptical. Prisoners will try anything to get out of a jail cell. Um, there are good chances this patient was faking this bizarre condition. But there might have been other possibilities. Um, they tried some Benadryl, thinking it was having a dystonic reaction, and nothing happened. They scraped the soles of his foot with a pointed end of a reflex hammer. No response. They applied burnt pressure to the base of his finger, an excruciating painful maneuver to see if he would move, um, and he didn't. Um, inside, George was consumed with anger. He can hear everything they said. He can feel everything they did. He screamed when they jabbed the soles of his feet. Um, at one point, he was so angry, he tried to hit one of the doctors, and but he moved so slowly that nobody in the room noticed. So eventually, he gets admitted to the neuro unit at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, and the rest of the book goes on from there. The story goes on. That they couldn't figure out what this bizarre syndrome was. They knew it was probably a drug-induced, weird neurologic symptom. And while they were discussing it, someone had remembered that back in 1976, there was a case of a 23-year-old chemist who actually tried to make a sloppy batch of some drug called M-triple-P, which was a meperidine derivative. His case was eventually published in the obscure journal of psychiatric research in 1979, and actually, via a, I'm told it was a cocktail party. Someone remembered this case, brought it to the attention of the new cluster of cases in 1982 where six drug users were using this new street heroin. And there, the whole 
um, discovery mode of MTPT went on. It involved um, William Langston, the physician who wrote this book, a variety of other people at the uh, NI National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, Erwin Kaufman was one of those. And eventually they sorted out what this was, and eventually it became a model for producing Parkinson's disease. Sort of the landmark medical article that came out on this was in the New England Journal in 1985, several years later, entitled The Clinical Syndrome of Striatal Dopamine Deficiency, Parkinsonism Induced by 1-Methyl-4-Phenyl-1-2-3-6-Tetrahydropyridine, or M. PTP with Stan Burns as the lead author and Erwin Coplin, the previous mentioned uh, person, as the last author. They talk a little bit about the cluster of cases. And what they did is they actually got some of these people back to the National Institute of Mental Health. He describes their clinical characteristics, which include marked rigidity, muteness, and inability to swallow. Um, they had hypokinesia, bradykinesia, cogwheel rigidity, posturing and resting tremor. Um, flex posturing, gait disturbancing with hesitation, shuffling, festination, which is these small little baby-like steps, end block turning, loss of arm swing, loss of facial expressions, drooling, dysphagia, speech disturbances, micrographia, where you write smaller and smaller little words, loss of eye convergence, and exaggerated glabella reflexes and seborrhea, which is not neurologic but was known, seen in all of these. And the true resting tremor that we see in classic Parkinson's disease patients were really not particularly noted in these people. These people all had these free, freezing episodes and these sort of mutinous that was characteristic of this new drug phenomenon. And they went on and they collected um, the three metabolites of the three neurotransmitters that were um, known at that time. So they looked at homovanillic acid in lumbar spinal fluid um, they looked at 5-hydroxyindolacetic acid, and uh, they looked at um, another metabolite of norepinephrine. And what they found was, um, the, compared to normal subjects, the MHPG, which is this dopamine metabolite, was significantly lower in all those subjects in their spinal fluid, and the other metabolites of, do of serotonin metabolism norepinephrine metabolism were essentially normal um, compared to other subjects. And they postulated that somehow the ability to synthesize dopamine was disturbed in all of these patients. This was a complete dopaminergic loss. And they went on to characterize that as the putative toxin involved eventually this MTP, MPTP, which is a very simple looking double um, benzene ring molecule with a uh, uh, CH group on the end, and uh, they talked about how they uh, would probably explore this as a model for uh, in animals that they can now begin animal modeling for treating Parkinson's disease, and in fact, from there, multiple, multiple anti-Parkinson drugs have come out at the time, really, only L-dopa, uh, carbidopa, or cinnamet was available in several of these patients had been put on cinematic with some transient response, but it was an incomplete response. And I just have to say, read the rest of the book, for those of you interested, to uh, figure out what happens to them eventually. There's been Nova specials and a variety of other things made on those. So um, someone once said, the reason we study history is to not repeat it. Unfortunately, uh, the people involved in some of the drugs we'll talk about today 
um, didn't heed that warning. So the first new drug we're going to talk about is a drug um, in the cathinone group called methcathinone. Or we're going to talk about a cluster of cases in two articles that occurred in, of all places, Latvia. And to tell us about those and the follow-up of those cases is uh, Jen, our visiting medicine. So the first article I read is called A Parkinsonian Syndrome in Methcathinone Users and the Role of Manganese. And this is um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. And they looked at 23 adults in Latvia who were either current or former users of methcathinone. And um, they they all were positive for hepatitis C and um, 20 were also positive for HIV. Um, They found a distinctive extrapyramidal syndrome in all of these patients, uh, changes in the MRI signal in the basal ganglia and elevated blood manganese levels in the current methcathinone users, um, which in the former users um, went uh, back into normal range. Interestingly enough is um, the method of production of methcathinone in Russia and Eastern Europe is um, produced at home um, in you know, a less than sterile environment, and it's done with potassium permanganate oxidation uh, in the presence of acetic acid, whereas in North America, powder for inhalation or insufflation is made by a chromate oxidation in the presence of sulfuric acid. And so what this article was looking at is this extrapyramidal symptom and its relation to um, manganese toxicity. So they did detailed neurologic examinations and MRIs, um, and what they found was this very distinctive extrapyramidal symptom that included um, most patients having gait disturbance as their initial neurological disorder and that was 20 of the users and three of the users, their initial neurological dysfunction was with hypophonia. And so interestingly enough, uh, while this uh, extrapyramidal symptom is called Parkinsonian, there are some distinct differences um, between that. Like the last case we talked about, they did not have tremors at rest the neurological dysfunctions that they found with this um, methcathinone syndrome was a particular difficulty with backward motion. And when they tested them walking backwards, 19 out of the 23 actually fell. Um, They also had a symmetric motor disorder rather than Parkinson, which is usually asymmetric. Um, And they also had speech disturbances, hypophonia, or soft speech. Um, Three of the patients were treated with levodopa with no observable change in their disorder. And similar to manganese toxicity, chelation therapy reduced manganese levels without any change in the neurological side effects. 
And with the confounding variables of hepatitis C and HIV infection, hepatitis C is not associated with any type of extrapyramidal disorder. And um, HIV status was um, not present in all uh, patients, and some that had the sim syndrome were HIV negative. And like I said, one of the important things that they found in this study, incidentally, was that none of the neurologic symptoms resolved even with the lessening of manganese levels to within normal range after stopping use of methacathinone. And the second study that I looked at is called the Outcome of the Movement Disorder in Methacathinone Abusers Clinical MRI and Magnesemia Changes in Neuropathology is from the European Journal of Neurology in 2013. And basically they just look to confirm with a more longitudinal study that these movement, this, uh, these neurological changes and movement disorders did in fact persist after discontinuation of methcathinone, even though the previous study suggested that it wasn't explicitly studied with um, looking at, at toxicity and um, MRI signals uh, and clinical symptoms over a longer period of time. And so I believe the range of clinical trials was a median of 32.5 months with 18 methcathinone users in this second study. And again, um, all of these were hepatitis C positive, 15 were HIV positive. Um, and they use similar neurological scales, including Parkinson's disease rating scale, colon and year, uh, staging of Parkinson's disease, and the Schwab and England activities of daily living scale to assess them neurologically. Both studies found um, with the use of the mini mental status exam, um, very little if any cognitive decline um, with methcathinone users, which was interesting as well. Um, so like I said, they were re examined neurologically after a median of 32.5 months and um, regardless of their um, time after stopping methcathinone, um, they still had these neurological symptoms that I mentioned in the first study. Um, and no patient showed significant overall improvement in their movement disorder, um, despite improvement in manganese levels. Um, the, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned to the MRI, T1-weighted hyperintensities were found in the globus, globus pallidus and um, substantia nigra, which are parts of the basal ganglia responsible for control of voluntary movements. Um, substantia nigra is where we see dopaminergic um, degeneration in Parkinson's disease. And so even the former users did show improvement of 
um, less hyperintensity of these areas on MRI, but again, did not show improvement in uh, clinical symptoms. And again, you know, there's the confounding variable of hepatitis C and HIV. I, I think it's it's difficult to study IV drug users without this possible um, extra variable. So that is something to consider with these studies. Um, another interesting thing about this second study is that they did look at a palatal area biopsy, which showed um, changes to myelin sheaths, formation of oligodendrolyl uh, osmophilic bodies, and mitochondrial abnormalities. Um, yeah, so I think those, that pretty much summarizes those two. Yeah. Anything to add? Again, kind of like the Santa Clara cluster, cluster, this was an experiment of essentially serendipity that these people were making this methcathinone with permanganate instead of chromate as the oxidizing agent in their homemade labs. Uh, it was the same group of authors essentially that looked at the first report of 23 patients and got to come back three years later and follow up on 18 of them. And the bad news is they, they didn't get better, despite some of them stopping their methcathinone use, despite chelating several of them with EDTA, and despite actually improvement in MRI as far as signal intensity um, in their you know, uh, globus pallidus and other areas of their midbrain. And they do have pretty dramatic-looking uh, MRIs with the study published in the New England Journal showing hyper densities in a variety of areas of their uh, brain that are consistent with this movement disorder. There's pretty good description of the type of symptoms they had, making these drug-induced Parkinsonian syndromes a little bit different than classic Parkinson's disease, the solely progressive degenerative disease of older age. They said this group of methcathinone users had a forward tilt of their trunk at their hips on standing. Um, they didn't have the classic hunched pots posture that Parkinson's disease patients have. Um, their arms were slightly abducted at the sides with reduced swinging, which was common. They tended to walk on their balls of their feet when going forward, and they seemed to fall forward into the next stride. So it's kind of this unusual gait that they experienced, which is even more atypical than just your standard Parkinson patients. They all had trouble turning around and going sideways to take a corrective step when they did that. And they also fell, a lot of them fell over when trying to walk backwards, which is kind of classic. Now remember, most of these are not elderly people. These are 20-year-old IV drug users that were having this uh, problem to the point where they said 11 of them uh, weren't able to walk independently and make a wheelchair bound. And obviously in the follow-up study, um, you know, this is a permanent severe motor impairment of refractory to standard Parkinsonian medication treatments that resulted as a result of this. As far as I know, this hasn't shown up in the United States because of the way it's made differently here, but obviously methcathinone is amongst the new derivative stimulants that we see um, out there. So something to be aware of as different populations or um, perhaps uh, Eastern European, Russian uh, drug traffickers move into different areas to sell these drugs, this may show up again. Um, so, lest we think that all drug-induced Parkinson's disease is from 
um, just these drugs of abuse. I want to cover some other areas that are related interest here. Um, one thing I heard of just recently um, is a drug that we use apparently a lot of, but in rare circumstances can induce, um, thankfully, a reversible form of Parkinson's disease, and that's valproic acid or Depakote. So, Tracy, tell us about that. All right, so this um, article is entitled Valproic Acid Induced Parkinsonism in the Elderly, a Comprehensive Review of the Literature. It was published in 2011 in the American Journal of Geriatric Pharmacotherapy. Um, and this is not an actual study itself, it really is just a literature review. Um, it was done to assess for possible common factors um, regarding VCA-induced Parkinsonism in the elderly. Um, it sounds like this is something that's been noted for about the past 30 years or so, but um, there hasn't been any um, overall, there hasn't been a consensus as far as what specific risk factors for the development of this condition related to VCA are. Um, so just as a background, what um, valproic acid is, um, it's a medication that uh, is used predominantly these days as both an anti-epileptic and a mood stabilizer. It has other uses as well. Um, it's used in uh, some people for migraine prophylaxis. Um, and uh, can be used especially in the elderly. This article noted that the majority of the, the case reports that they looked at, um, it, was, it was used for agitation in demented patients and uh, anxiety disorders in the elderly. So really a broad spectrum of uses. The exact mechanism of the drug, um, what we say is, is unknown. Um, there's a few theories, um, especially related to what your actual indication of use is. Um, but for the intent of, of this article, uh, I'll go into a little bit later um, some of their theories for why they can, you could be seeing this Parkinsonism, um, but nothing that's fully firmly established. So um, what this article did, as far as uh, methods, um, they ended up doing a case review by looking at Urban Medline, PubMed, and Cochrane from 1970 to 2010. They had a whole spectrum of uh, search terms um, to look for case reports and studies related to VCA. Um, I won't go into what all of those were, but they are pretty redundant. It's basically different words for VCA, different words for Parkinson's or for Parkinsonism. And um, they uh, did additionally specify the criteria that they wanted the patients that been included in this literature review to be greater than or equal to six years old. So they did that review, and then they applied something that they called the Naranjo algorithm to assess whether a clinical, whether a change in clinical status was actually the result of an adverse drug reaction. Um, what that algorithm is, is basically a series of 10 yes or no questions. I should say yes, no, or don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and for each yes, you basically get a point. It didn't say what those questions were, but um, it did give the ranges. So if uh, um, a reaction scored between one to four, it was possible that this was related to an adverse drug reaction. If it was a five to, five to eight, that was probable. And then greater than or equal to nine was, um, was uh, highly probable. So it was a pretty broad range. Yeah, and it's a way of rating like whether an adverse drug reaction is possibly or pharmacologically related to the drug or it's just like idiosyncratic or we don't know. Okay. 
So it's it's one that's been used in different studies. Okay. Okay. Um, so they they noted that they found 13 case reports um, where there was a elderly patients greater than the age of 60, um, where they attributed their development of Parkinson-like um, symptoms to valproic acid itself. Um, some of these uh, findings were in the context of individual patient case reports. And some of these findings were more large-scale studies where a certain cluster or cohort of patients um, developed Parkinson-like symptoms um, outside the context of an actual Parkinson's disease diagnosis. So it was really a broad, broad spectrum of, um, of uh, articles that they were looking at. They went into each individual um, <laughs> each individual article that they found and really gave a plethora of details as far as what that article commented on. Um, but to, to kind of make things a little bit more cohesive, um, the, the things that were consistent from article to article that they compared was looking at this Naranjo algorithm. Um, and they reported uh, a change with adverse drug reactions of ranging between three to six. Um, they said their average was more five to six, but really when you look at each one, it was, there were a few that went down to three. So I'm calling it three to six. Yeah, and and they, I think they were pretty strict in how they interpreted those. And you kind of read some of the descriptions and you go, wow, that really sounds like that was due to the drug, you know, because they weren't really on anything else and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's hard yeah. to say it's not when you stop the medication mm -hmm. and the symptoms go away, too. Yeah. Um, they looked at gender as well to see if there was any correlation between uh, whether males were just being or more at risk. They looked at the dose of the drug um, that a particular patient was on. They looked at the duration of time that the patient had been taking that drug. They looked at the actual serum level of the medication, too. Um, they looked at imaging. They looked at uh, particular symptoms that a patient was having. They looked at the patient's response to discontinuation of the drug, um, and they also looked at um, whether patients um, in these articles had received uh, L-DOPA or um, Carbidopa, and if so, how they responded to that. Because all these all these articles were constructed differently, um, there's with within that laundry list, there's not one particular thing that is consistent throughout every single one, um, but. Overall, um, gender seemed to be pretty equal from um, males versus females as far as their risk for developing these Parkinson's symptoms. The dose was immensely variable. So um, a lot of people were on very high doses of alcoholic acid, and a lot of people were on more minimal doses of alcoholic acid. Um, duration of time um, that they had actually been on the medication was also very variable. The shortest uh, that I found reported was um, one week prior to development of symptoms, but other patients had been on the medication for upwards of 10 years without any recent changes to their actual medication dose, and then subsequently started to develop symptoms. For serum levels, the majority of the patients actually that um, with across these articles uh, that had serum levels obtained, um, most of them were actually sub-therapeutic. So therapeutic was defined as 50 to 100, and uh, a lot of these were in the teens to, to 40s. For imaging, um, a couple of the studies looked at spec scans, um, 
And uh, a couple of them, as far as consistencies, did find that there was decreased perfusions, either the frontal or the temporal lobe. Um, but it didn't comment on whether those studies were repeated after discontinuation of the VPA to see whether that was something that resolved. And in addition, there were some other studies that did not find that sort of um, type of procedure. Um, there were, uh, uh, there was other imaging on EEGs as well that were really inconsistent from patient to patient. There was some disease atrophy, um, but uh, a lot of those patients were noted to be demented at baseline too, so it was kind of a, a chicken or the egg uh, situation. Um, for symptoms, we've already uh, broached a bit of what the typical symptoms of, uh, of Parkinson, um, Parkinsonism are. Um, unlike the, the prior article that we talked about, this, this seemed to, to show that there was uh, less, less consistency between how these patients presented. So anything within the spectrum of a Parkinson-like disorder um, could qualify from suffering to hypothermia, to resting tremor, really anything and everything that fits into this category. Um, and then as far as uh, what happened when these drug levels, or when uh, this drug was discontinued, most patients actually did really well. That was like the one consistent mm -hmm. thing, that if you feel like this is really related to valproic acid, if you discontinue the drug, the symptoms should go away. Um, the time course for those symptoms to go away was also um, very variable. So for some patients, it went away within a couple days to a week. And uh, for other patients, it took up to three months. For, for articles that they looked more long-term, um, it seems that absolutely all symptoms were gone um, at like the six-month and the 12-month follow-up. Um, and sorry, I shouldn't say all symptoms, but that there was definite improvement at the six-month and 12-month follow-up. The extent to which a patient recovers is also variable. So some did have all symptoms go away, and some had maintenance of that. Of um, some of the symptoms, which again, it's hard to say whether that was because of uh, the drug itself or because of another underlying disease process. Um, one or two of the studies looked at L-dopa and carbidopa. It really wasn't something that seemed to be super prevalent throughout this literature review. Um, and uh, a couple of the patients did have positive response to administration of these medications, um, but some didn't. So it doesn't seem like it's been uh, adequately studied as far as whether this is a, an effective um, treatment for uh, this, this effective alcohol acid. So the conclusions um, that the authors drew from this uh, literature review, the really big um, take-home point in my mind was that uh, high clinical suspicion is really needed for um, diagnosis of BPA induced Parkinsonism. And the reason for that is because in the elderly population, Parkinson's disease is by far the number one cause for these symptoms. So if you have a patient that uh, you're suspecting it to be drug-related, you really need to rule out all the other causes before you talk it up to that. Um, the other big take-home point, I think, is just that withdrawing medication, if you truly feel like that's what it is, is the best thing to do because patients can to respond. Um, additional conclusions, no obvious risk factors. There's an unpredictable time course for when you're going to develop these symptoms, an unpredictable response to both the dose and the removal, and uh, an unpredictable rate of, or extent of improvement. 
So a lot of lot of unknown variables, we'll say. All right. Great. Yeah. So I agree. All the take home messages there is that it's, it would be easy to have one of these folks who are older and has bipolar or agitation or dementia, and then they develop a tremor or bradykinesia or any of the classic Parkinsonian things say, well, you know, now they got Parkinson's disease also. And but the real thing benefit to this population would be to realize that valproic acid is a, I wouldn't say common, but at least known uh, agent that can produce Parkinson syndrome, and if you stop it, the good news, probably really good news, is that part of their symptom complex will resolve, although slowly in many cases. So not to just say, oh, that's you know too bad they got something else on top of their chronic diseases. And they speculate with all sorts of different theories about why this may be so, but the bottom line is. Nobody knows what exactly the mechanism of action is, and until we develop some mice model or some other thing to look into it, I don't think we're going to know in the near future. But um, probably something at least most people probably are not previously aware of, but it be interesting to talk about in this session on drug-induced Parkinsonism. As far as other agents that might produce it, un unlike poison centers in some countries, they actually have pharmacovigilance centers in areas around Europe where they look at sort of drug side effects. It's almost like a cross between a drug information center and a side effect center, which doesn't really exist. So to, to describe an interesting report out of the one in France relating to Parkinson drugs, we have our visiting medical student, Andre. So this, uh, artic, this paper was called Drug-Induced Parkinsonism, a review of 17 years experience in the Regional Pharmacovigilance Center in France. This period of 17 years was between 1993 and 2009. Um, the Pharmacovigilance Center basically just um, collects reports by physicians um, about any um, adverse effects from uh, medications in general. Um, and uh, they, during this period of 17 years, they got 20,000 855 reports of adverse drug reactions, of which 155, that's 0.7%, were uh, considered to be drug-induced uh, Parkinsonism. Now, some of them were drug-induced and others were um, worsening of previous Parkinson's due to uh, unusually prescribed medication. Um, so, Interestingly, what the study noted was there were basically two peaks of incidence of these kind of symptoms. Um, and the first peak was during the first three months uh, post uh, since the start of administering this new drug. And uh, that's, that made up for 69% of these reports. Um, and the second peak was um, after 12 months of taking the medication. Um, and the second peak was actually mostly correlated to the calcium channel blockers, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, also, when, when they kind of define, okay, what would be a considered uh, Parkinsonism-type uh, symptom, they refer to three of the, of the um, car, uh, cardinal symptoms. So those being rigidity, um, resting tremor, and bradykinesia, or akinesia. Um, of these three, rigidity was the most commonly reported symptom, and it made up for 
6.7% of these uh, reports, of the 155 reported cases. Um, regardless of which symptom was uh, uh, reported, the natural history, I guess, or the evolution uh, of these patients was actually, um, most of the time, complete, um, or actually all of the time was, was complete recovery after withdrawal of the, of the drug. Um, now, as far as the drugs that were reported, uh, as we would have suspected, most of them were due to the central dopaminergic antagonists, these active D2 receptor um, in the CNS, and they're the antipsychotic class. So they made up for 49% of all the reports, um, but basically that leaves 51% that are not antipsychotic. So that's the interesting thing. Um, the next most common class were the antidepressants, which made up 8% of the reports, um, and followed by calcium channel blockers, which made up 5%, uh, as well as peripheral dopaminergic antagonists, also at 5%, and H1 antihistamines, also at 5%. Um, so these were basically the most, most common uh, drugs related to these symptoms. Other ones we've already talked about, such as valproic acid, lithium, uh, amiodarone, um, and others. Now, um, these uh, Parkinsonian symptoms, as far as age group goes, were mostly reported in um, those of advanced age. So uh, the most common group being that between 60 and 79 years uh, of age. Um, I don't find that particularly surprising, given, uh, you know, I mean, um, I guess who we can, uh, who, who takes, that tends to take more medications, but at any rate. So, basically, the methods of this study, like I said, are, it, it's a centralized study. The pharmacovigilance uh, system was established in 1973 in France, and, um, Physicians are required to uh, report adverse drug reactions um, since actually that law was instituted in 1984. Um, there's 31 regional centers and they all just collect the data and then centralize it. Um, also, for every report, is a causality assessment. So um, basically, they, they, they try and determine is the symptom. Uh, can there be a, a, a cause-effect relationship drawn between the symptom and the medication? And in that case, like, the, the causality assessment is positive. Um, but in other cases, it's just an association. They're unable to draw this cause and effect. And so the relationship between, um, between drug and effect is just suspected or so associated. Um, let's see. As far as the studies uh, went, again, they only had to uh, to have one of the three cardinal symptoms of Parkinsonism. Like I said, resting tremor, rigidity, or akinesia. They did not have to have all three. Um, and so one of my concerns regarding this was how, ac how accurate is this as far as calling it truly Parkinsonism uh, or you know, drug-induced Parkinsonism. Um, However, they did exclude other movement disorders such as dyskinesia, dystonia, chorea, and uh, tremor with no other uh, specifications. So, um, 
as again, I think we've uh, uh, pretty much just said the two main peaks again, and um, in in age groups, and um, I think the main the main part of this study that I found particularly interesting was the calcium channel blockers. Mm -hmm. um, I did not uh, expect to see this relationship um, between Parkinson, uh, drug induced Parkinson, and calcium channel blockers. Um, the actually, and to assure people, interestingly, verapamil and dopiazem um, were not the 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 main calcium channel blockers causing these kind of symptoms. It was actually two other calcium channel blockers um, that I haven't, I'm not really familiar with. And they're called cinerazine um, and flunerazine. Um, Neither of were ever approved in the United States. Oh. Drugs used elsewhere mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's a bit of relief uh, mm -hmm. for us. Um, and there's really, it, it's really unclear how, um, what kind of mechanism there may be for this, um, for this kind of effect um, by the calcium channel block. Um, so that's about it. Yeah, I mean, they suspected those two drugs, and I think there was some publicity in Central Europe and France that they were both, I think, migraine drugs rather than any hypertensive drugs. And um, you got to wonder then if is there some dopaminergic pathway that's being blocked for migraine treatment as a result of those. But they, they do mention that there was a, a case with uh, deltiazem and two cases with verapamil, nonetheless. Um, you, you know, you mentioned one of the things, this is a passive surveillance and, uh, system. So although it's the law that people are supposed to report this, you, you know, you know how human nature is, not everybody's going to call up and report every single adverse drug effect that they see. Um, although this is sort of a rarer one, you would expect more reporting on rare instances than common instances. But nonetheless, it's probably the same as reporting poison center data, um, you know, that we do all the time and draw conclusions from with uh, that caveat that it's a passive surveillance system. So, um, you know, I thought it was, again, interesting that calcium channel blockers, although the ones not used in the United States, are, are implicated in a delayed onset. These people were on this drug for almost a year before they developed some of delayed onset Parkinson syndrome. Um, so, again, another group of things to uh, look out for. And they also do mention a couple of the valproic acid cases. So probably... Our most interesting, uh, odd toxicologic phenomenon, since we cover Guam, I felt obliged to throw this article in because it's our big, you know, other than the brown tree snake, this is the one bizarre thing that happens on the island of Guam that nobody else sees. Uh, it goes by a variety of names and to tell us all about it, including its history and causation, is our toxicologist. So this article is called Beyond Guam, the Cyanobacteria BMAA Hypothesis of the Cause of ALS and Other Neurodegenerative Diseases. It was published in 2009 in uh, Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis Journal. Um, so just as a history of, of what we're going to be talking about, sporadic cases of ALS are, are found throughout the world, but there's been clusters that have been noted specifically in a few places. Um, including the Mariana Islands, which includes Guam, um, the key peninsula of Japan, and parts of uh, New Guinea as well. The disease complex that we see in these areas is often combined, it's not just ALS, but it's actually combined with Parkinson's syndrome and dementia um, as well. 
And in the 1950s, the incidence of ALS in Guam was 200 per 100,000 people, which was 100 times higher than elsewhere in the world. Um, and almost a third of their deaths were due to ALS. Um, in patients with ALS, five, about 5 to 10 percent of the family history of the disease, and about a, a fifth of those with familial um, cases are linked to a mutation in the SOD1 gene. So a lot of the research that's been done on, on ALS so far has been in the familial ALS cases, and there's comp comparatively, there's actually little research that's been done on the sporadic cases, just kind of hoping to glean some information that we get from the familial research. So one of the hypotheses, of, especially with, with relation to Guam, of, of maybe why they had such an epidemic was related to um, their food, and specifically cycad seeds that they eat. So the uh, cycad hypothesis um, essentially was, came about because of this epidemic that we saw um, in the mid-century. So indigenous Chamorro people in Guam um, call ALS lytico, and they call Parkinson's bodig. So the whole complex of symptoms of lytico bodig, we just call it ALS PDC. Um, and it was first described in the Spanish period way back in the 1700s, but had later uh, more thorough descriptions of hereditary paralysis in the early 1900s. Essentially what happened was in 1944, after the Americans uh, recaptured Guam from Japan, uh, a neurologist, H.N. Zimmerman, noted this high incidence of ALS that he was seeing on the island, which generated further uh, systematic study of the epidemic. So the epidemiologic study that, that they did indicated that it could be due to environmental toxin, um, especially since they looked at Chamorro people who moved to California um, and then ended up developing the disease, but in a delayed fashion, as well as Filipino people who moved to the island and also developed the disease in a delayed fashion. So one of the one of the strongest suspicions was for the cycad seeds as a cause of the disease. So um, essentially what this is is it's derived from Cycus micronesica, um, which was is used well it used to be used as a primary source of carbohydrate in the indigenous people of Guam. And they knew it to be toxic, so they actually went through pretty extensive prolonged washing to remove the toxin, um, but they would still eat it. So then epidemiologic studies also showed that um, those who had preference for, for the traditional foods had a higher risk of Parkinson's. Um, so they then tried to feed the cycad seeds to animals, but they really failed to reproduce any of the ALS symptoms that we were seeing in, in people, um, despite pretty extensive research. So around this time, um, the BOAA toxin um, was also being researched and was being linked to human lacrosome. So they started looking at a similar compound in the cycad seed, um, and then they found BMAA, also known as uh, beta-methylamino-L-alanine. So this is a, it's a non-protein amino acid, um, which as a group is a pretty, are pretty potent toxins um, generated to protect the plants from the environment. So BMAA is, is known to be neurotoxic in mice and non-human primates, um, but they could really only demonstrate subacute and acute toxicity, and they couldn't really generate this delayed toxicity that we were seeing in people. So they came up with a bunch of other theories to explain maybe why we were seeing this. Could be a slow viral agent, an imbalance of um, metabolism, parathyroid dysfunction, leading to altered uh, calcium-magnesium metabolism, aluminum, and then also a sterile glycoside theory. So Lots of theories were being thrown around, um, but we really didn't know what was causing it. 
So that led to specifically looking at cyanobacteria production of EMAA as a cause of the Guam epidemic. So some of the research found that the BMAA in cycads originate from the symbiotic cyanobacteria um, that are found in the Cycus micronesica. Um, and the BMA is, BMAA is actually biomagnified up the food chain. So it's in cyanobacteria, then in cycad seeds, and flying foxes that eat the seeds, pigs and deer, and then ultimately in humans. Um, interestingly, the BMA, BMAA that's found in the seeds are really found more in a protein fraction rather than um, just being free uh, BMAA. And they've actually looked at human brains with this um, ALS PDC complex um, and found BMAA in those brains, but not in control brains. Um, they also found that when they looked at the brains that the, the BMAA in the brains were actually, had much more protein bound fraction, fraction um, as opposed to just free BMAA. Um, also, the flying foxes uh, were actually a pretty large food source in Guam um, up until recently, um, and they were also known to have high levels of BMAA, but in, in the flying foxes, it was actually more in the free farm, and they didn't really have much in the, in the protein. And just not, they're not really form. foxes, they're bats. Right. Yes. Bats. Fruit bats. Called flying foxes, <laughs> which I think is much cooler. Yeah. Except um, when someone serves you one. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Um, so it's, they thought that, um, interestingly, these um, bats or flying foxes didn't actually get symptoms. Um, so a couple different theories on why they didn't get symptoms. Either they weren't incorporating the BMAA into their brain, or it couldn't cross the blood-brain barrier, or just they simply didn't live long enough to develop these delayed effects. So in humans, um, kind of came along to generate an hypothesis hypothesis that the long-term accumulation of the BMAA um, is eventually leads to uh, the catabolism of proteins, and then you have release of the neurotoxic substance, leading to the delayed symptoms. So I've done a couple different, um, there's a couple different brain banks that have tried to look at this, one in Vancouver and one in Miami, have done a lot of work on this, and Essentially, they've looked at brains with patients with Alzheimer's um, and found lots of BMAA in there, but none in controls. Um, and interestingly, even the, the concentration of BMAA that they saw in Alzheimer's was only one-sixth of that, what they were seeing in the Guam brains that had disease. So, um, like I said, the University of Miami was also has a brain bank, and they were also doing research on this. They also confirmed protein-bound BMAA, BMAA in brains with Alzheimer's, um, similar to levels previously found. Um, they also found it in ALS patients within their brains and spinal cords, as well as no detection or low detection in control brains. So um, the, the really the only animal studies that we have, they essentially labeled the MAA and found that it binds to synthetic melanin and melanin-containing cells in the retina and brain. So thought to maybe BMA is the link between the Parkinson's disease complex and retinopathy that we see. Um, they demonstrated in these labeled BMAA studies that the um, rate of uptake into the brain is different than other organs um, at seven hours for the brain versus 30 minutes to two hours in other organs, as well as a prolonged half-life in the brain, which was more than 25 hours versus 10 to 15 hours in other tissues. 
So their conclusion was that chronic, when you get chronic exposure of BMAA, um, leads to elevated levels in, in um, brain proteins, and you kind of get a, a chronic neurotoxic reservoir that as we catabolize the proteins, it releases the neurotoxic substance. Specifically, they found that you have um, labeled BMAA is preferentially uptake, uptake, this preferential uptake in the hippocampus, the basal ganglius, and the cerebellum. So that might explain some of the symptoms, specific symptoms that we see in, in these complexes. Um, leads to other concerns with, with the cyanobacteria because of, you know, there's cyanobacteria all over the, the world and also concern about um, other places like the keep the keep from Japan, even in South Florida, Chesapeake Bay, and New Hampshire, all these places have cyanobacteria that could potentially be causing um, symptoms through BMAA. So interestingly, over the past 50 years, there's actually been a really marked decrease in the uh, incidence of ALS in Guam. Um, and right now, it's still elevated. It's three times what it is elsewhere in the world, but it's definitely decreased from compared to 100 times other world levels. So this is probably due to decreased consumption of the traditional cyanide-based flower. Um, the flying fox population is near extinct due to overhunting, so people aren't eating those. And the epidemic um, seen in the 1940s and 50s probably was also related to starvation um, during World War II. Um, as you get decreased or increased catabolism of proteins, it probably releases more of the toxic substance. So there's also a theory about um, BMAA relation to excitotoxic amino acids, specifically to glutamate. So there's a glutamate hypothesis about ALS that is essentially is exposure to any excitatory amino acids, specifically glutamate and aspartate, um, stimulates the glutamate receptors, increases intracellular calcium, and then results in motor neuron death. Um, and then they've done some studies to try to block this calcium uh, cascade and uh, blocking NMDA receptors and AMPA channels also does help reduce symptoms. Interestingly, the only drug found to delay ALS symptoms in humans is Rilazole, um, and that's thought to actually act by inhibiting glutamate toxicity, so there could be some relation here. A couple other mechanisms that they that's postulated that BMAA might produce neurotoxicity with glutamate receptors. Um, it stimulates uh, polyphosphoinosyl hydrolysis, and that can be blocked as well. Um, spinal cord neurons specifically are sensitive to BMAA, so um, and you can attenuate this with NMDA antagonists. Um, and then the carbon, the BMAA carbamate is thought to actually be the toxic agent because it's only toxic in the presence of um, bicarb. And that, that agent is actually structurally related to glutamate. I think the rest of it just talks about some assay issues that went back and forth. Yeah, probably exactly. not very relevant to our discussion of Parkinson's disease. But, um, you know, it does mention that our, our, our own, I say our own, the, uh, Peter Spencer, who's here at OHSU, is one of the big uh, researchers who looked in both uh, BM. AA and BOAA lathracism, and again, we actually talked about this just recently. Um, when the other name for BOAA is ODAP, and we talked recently about this New Yorker article written by uh, John Krakauer, who wrote the book um, Into the Wild, also wrote Into Thin Air, but Into the Wild is about Chris McCandless, this sort of free spirit who disappeared in the other part of the world we cover, which is Alaska, and he died of perhaps eating this wild potato uh, Hedacium alpium, and and 
through a series of blogs and websites and letters, um, a non-scientist had written about how he thought that maybe Chris McCandless had died from eating BOAA, or as he called it, ODAP, which is the same way of talking about these neuro-excitatory uh, glutamate-enhancing uh, agents, and you know makes the case that he's related to something else he read on a book about concentration camps, also a, a field of starvation, where you know these pro highly protein-bound neurotoxic substances, you're in a state of starvation, and they're released from their protein binding, they get into the brain, and they either cause some weird neurologic or movement disorder. So whether it's this Parkinson ALS, Lydigo-Bode complex in Guam, or something else, neurolatherism in um, uh, the concentration camp eating uh, chick peas, not uh, chickling peas, yeah, not chick peas, but chick peas are good, chickling peas and starvation, <laughs> the lathrus is not so good. So it kind of brings us full circle to all of our uh, places that we, we talk about. So I think the bottom line is that Parkinsonism is a reasonably common neurodegenerative disorder, perhaps as much as 10% of the cases may be exogenously induced, whether it's drug-induced or manganese-induced. We didn't get into a lot about the manganese and miners and smelters and welders, but that occurs as well. Um, and, um, you know, there's these drugs of abuse that cause them, and certainly drugs that we use that can cause as well. So all of these would probably be looked at and worked up because at least a few of these forms are reversible and have good outcomes for uh, the patients. So um, with that, we'll wrap up for this month. And again, um, a good quick read for anyone who wants to know about the MTPT event is the Case of the Frozen Addicts by William Langston. The hunt through your, hunt through your uh, used bookstores and places to uh, find an old copy of that, but well worth um, a read. So uh, we'll see you all again next time.